Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. So on Monday, uh, when the beginning of this crazy week was going down, I was actually up on the hill, guys, with our beloved colleague and Renaissance man, Larry Wright, Uh, talking about his new novel, Mr. Texas, which is a reminder. We work with such amazing people, but Larry Wright, I think, has got to be the Mm. most amazing Mm. of them, right? He's a (laughs) screenwriter. He's a playwright. He's a novelist. And of course, he's a National Magazine Award winning uh, nonfiction writer, too. Larry is just a genius. I always come away from my encounters with Larry feeling boring and unproductive. The book is a incredible dead-on look at very ripped from the headlines Texas today. One of the main figures is a speaker of the Texas House of Representatives and uh, we're having this conversation uh, in the shadow of the Capitol the other day when uh the motion to vacate against the House speaker here in Washington was being filed. I thought, wow, talk about uh fiction imitating life imitating fiction. <laughs> Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Jane Mayer. Hey, Susan. Hey, Susan. So, Kevin McCarthy, out as Speaker of the House of Representatives, possibly the most impossible job in Washington today. His fall was swift, humiliating, unprecedented, and in some ways, utterly predictable. Unfortunately, 4% of our conference can join all the Democrats and dictate who can be the Republican speaker in this House. I don't think that rule is good for the institution, but apparently I'm the only one. I would point out, by the way, it was Kevin McCarthy who agreed to that rule as a concession to get the job in the first place. But let's step back a bit, guys. This has never happened before in American history. It seems like just one person can take down an entire branch of the U.S. government. This week, that person was Florida Congressman Matt Gates. If McCarthy was the clear loser, Gates certainly felt like he was the winner. Kevin McCarthy is a feature of the swamp. He has risen to power by collecting special interest money and redistributing that money in exchange for favors. Uh, we are breaking the fever now, and we should elect a speaker who's better. So if not for months, Matt Gates has toyed with Kevin McCarthy. In January, you'll remember, it took 15 ballots to elect Kevin McCarthy as speaker, only after Matt Gates relented and got the concession of being able to call a vote at any time to remove Kevin McCarthy. That's exactly what happened this week. Evan, didn't McCarthy hand Matt Gates the gun with which he used to shoot him a few months later? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, in the Chekhovian sense, this thing was was guaranteed to happen. The gun was sort of lying there. The word, I think, at the top of everybody's list, uh, and you mentioned it, is humiliation. I mean, that has been the dominant sensation in Washington. I think you guys might agree over the last few days. I mean, he's been sort of um, politically defrocked. Um, it's not the end of his career as a congressman, but you, you do have to go back to 
the 19th century, in fact, I mean, I did find this kind of interesting that not only is he the first person to get kicked out, but he was the shortest speaker since 1876 when somebody died of tuberculosis. So I will tell you that just my sense of him is that there was always something sort of childlike about Kevin McCarthy. You know, people will sometimes talk about the fact that he sort of seemed to be play acting. But what I'm actually getting at is something a little bit graver, which is that he was living in a world of no consequences. That's how he operated day to day. He would promise anything to get out of a, a jam. He would say, yes, we're going to do this. He ag agreed to allow himself to be removed by a single uh, member proposing to vacate the chair and putting it to a vote. And ultimately, this is a case of his first encounter, really, with accountability. Well, it's interesting that, uh, you know, to frame it as, as accountability when someone like Gates is taking names and taking numbers. But you mentioned history, Evan. Let's talk about that for one second, because this is a historic moment here. Once again, we've sort of crashed through one of the perceived kind of no-go zones in American politics, Jane. Uh, it's not only the shortest speaker since 1876, it's the first time since 1910 that there was any kind of effort to put a vote like this on the floor, a motion to vacate the chair. Back in 1910, Joseph Cannon defeated the motion to vacate and actually went on to become one of the most legendary and powerful speakers of the House. In fact, one of the main House office buildings today is named for Joe Cannon. I don't think anybody's going to be uh, naming any office buildings after Kevin McCarthy anytime soon. So, Evan, why does McCarthy say that this happened? Well, I mean, the most immediate precipitating fact in his telling is that he made the decision to keep the government open. He uh, sided with Democrats in doing that. And as he would put it, that put him then on the path of confrontation with these uh, eight members of his own party. Where do you think this this falls down in the history of recent dysfunction, right? In some ways, it's not only been predictable since the start of Kevin McCarthy's tenure in January, but really, if you look at the last three Republican speakers of the House, you had McCarthy, you had John Boehner, and you had Paul Ryan. So where do we classify this sort of unprecedented act? I mean, it's unprecedented is the word we keep using. I just remember when I joined a, a newspaper, you were never supposed to use the word unprecedented because hmm. you could almost always find, if you looked carefully, a precedent. But in fact, we're at a point where we are seeing a, a level of dysfunction that is is pushing through the barriers um, historically. And, you know, I mean, I guess rather than naming an, a building for for. Uh, McCarthy, they, you know, he, he might get a plaque next to Scaramucci. He's kind of the Scaramucci <laughs> of, of speakers, short, almost the shortest one in there. As you say, Susan, this is something that is not a one-off. It's been building. Um, this is the third Republican speaker we've seen basically to face an uprising and rebellion from the right flank. Uh, the, the, the previous two uh, stepped down of their own will when they saw the guillotine was being sharpened. And this one just uh, plain walked right into it. 
which has actually been interesting. It, it occasioned the way Washington works. Among other things, what people really have contempt for are are politicians who are no good at their game. Mm. What, no matter how terrible the thing is they're doing, if they're successful at it, you get a fair amount of credit. But people in Washington are talking about how basically, how could he be so incompetent? How could he face a vote like that and not have lined up the numbers and pulled over, you know, lined up the d- Democrats? Um, he was an incompetent speaker in every way. It was clear that he was going to be ousted and he wasn't prepared and out he went. But I think it's interesting to think of it as accountability because in a way, what I see is something sort of different, which is just that this right flank, they cannot be satisfied. Hmm. There, there is no speaker that will be um, okay for them because uh, they don't actually have policy proposals. They don't really want something. What they want is to tear everything down. This is a great point, I think, about sort of the chaos caucus, right? And is that ultimately the goal? That's sort of what you're saying. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is I mean, in some ways, it even goes back before these three speakers. If you take a look, if you're stepping way back for 40 years or 50 years, even there's been an assault from the right on the idea that government does good. And and what you're looking at are people who don't want government to succeed. They they want to oppose the very idea of what Congress does, call it the swamp, basically not compromise, not make policy, don't go to committee meetings. All they do is go on television and attack government. They've succeeded at what they want, which is showing that uh, government can be made dysfunctional. I mean, Susan, you know, you know Congress. You literally edited a newspaper about Congress. So, what did you make of the ouster? <laughs> well, you know, I think it's it's sort of an example of the revolution ultimately eating its own, right? You know, and that we have sort of more and more performative displays of outrage, right? You had uh, the Newt Gingrich revolution. That's what happened when I was working uh, on Capitol Hill at Roll Call Newspaper in 1994. Republicans take over Congress for the first time in four decades. And uh, it's essentially an assault on the establishment at the time and changing the rules, uh, basically eliminating uh, sort of lifelong tenure for committee chairs, which was the core of how Democrats ruled Congress for many decades. Newt Gingrich comes in. He blows that up. He has a bunch of young acolytes, including people like John Boehner. They're the revolutionaries, but they stay in power long enough. And then they become ousted by the next generation of revolutionaries. And I think that's part of the story here is that the cycle uh, that Republicans have gotten themselves in, because this is a Republican story. That's the other thing that I think we really have to talk about. It's it's very much about the nature of Republicans today, and in particular, this very radicalized conference of Republicans in the House of Representatives. Remember that a majority of them stepped over the shattered glass of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, and voted to go along with Donald Trump's uh, sort of fever dream about a rigged election that wasn't rigged. And so, you know, that's the kind of caucus that we're dealing with here. And so, Evan, you know, Jane was making this point about can, can anyone run uh, uh, the Republicans in the House of Representatives today. Can anyone get to 218? Or are, are we actually just looking at the breakdown of the Republican majority in the House, that it just doesn't work? Yeah. I, I remember, actually, it was a Democrat who, who made the point that there is a sort of structural downward spiral built into the current Republican 
uh, rhetoric, which is to say that if your if your theoretical objective as a party is to make a government that does less and less and less, that is an unbounded uh, process, meaning it can go on essentially forever because the government is not going to vanish. Whereas Democrats are in the opposite position, whereas if their if they're sort of core commitment, their basic project is to try to create a government that does more things more effectively, uh, then that is something in which they are evaluated based on the success of that. And so that is a, in its own way is a check on their ability to get further and further uh, out of the ordinary bandwidth of politics. Because if you promise that you're going to do something and it doesn't happen, then eventually you sort of regulate your behavior and become more normal. You're not seeing that on the right. What happens on the right is that eventually, as you say, and this has been one of our most durable rules on this show, is that there is always somebody who is more radical than you are. And it, I mean, and it goes along, of course, with the the redistricting and the gerrymandering of these districts. So if you look at Matt Gates's district, which is the first district in Florida, um, the most sort of northern and western district in the state, very, very conservative place. His district is what they call plus 38R, meaning it is 38 percent higher Republican voters. You cannot be a Democrat and win there. And so the only challenges come from the further and further right-wing challenges to whoever the Republican incumbent is. And that this is how Gates gets in. Well, let's talk about who is Matt Gates, uh, because he is, uh, you know, a sort of a, a TV monger with a pompadour, but he's also has real aspirations, right? He's, he seems to be using this campaign against Kevin McCarthy to possibly launch a campaign for governor in his home state of Florida. Evan, who who is Matt Gates and and why is he doing this? Well, it it's useful I think to go back and look at his origins and his first run. I mean, he comes out of a political family in Florida, which is ironic. He sort of positions himself as being the ultimate enemy of the establishment. Well, actually, his father was a major figure in the Florida State Senate. He was the president of the Senate at one point not too long ago. Matt Gates kind of came up through jobs in politics. Uh, the father was known as Papa Gates, and Matt was known, uh, once you hear this, it's hard to unhear it, as Baby Gates. Um, <laughs> and and, you know, his 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 father made his money running a for-profit hospice company, nice. which is just worth lingering on that for a second. But I think what's really important is that when Matt Gates then finally kind of makes his way up through these minor political jobs and runs for office for the first time, one of the very first things he says in his first advertisement is, and I'm, I'm just going to read it here because it's so important to hear it. He says, I'm running for Congress because we can't trust Washington. We can't trust the spineless politicians. And then the narrator comes on and gives what I think is almost like a caricature of the contemporary uh, right-wing message. Conservative Matt Gates will fight to pass open carry, kill Muslim terrorists, and build the wall. So it, he was, in his own way, a kind of distilled, concentrated, you know, thick extract of what the Republican message had become by the time Donald Trump came into office. I mean, I just wanted to add that he's not just a nepotism kid, kind of, basically. He's from a wealthy family. He self-funds. He puts in $200,000 of his own money. And, um, and, and, and there's a kind of a, kind of a playboy rich kid kind of fooling around at it um, aspect of him as he, as he comes into office. 
Matt Gates, I think more than almost anyone else who came in during the Trump era, kind of symbolized what this new era of all Trump, all the time politicians would become uh, in Capitol Hill. He was famous for going on Fox News and sort of being Trumpier than thou as a way to make his name and to get attention uh, during Trump's presidency. He has continued to sort of flaunt his relationship with Donald Trump. He he told reporters that he was speaking with Trump throughout his uh, successful, as it turned out, coup against Kevin McCarthy. So is this Trumpian style in American politics, is that part of the story of what's going on here, Evan? I think on some level, you have to recognize that they were both the outgrowth of this underlying, and I know we're using um, a lot of sort of biological metaphors here, but there's this sort of underlying primordial soup that created Donald Trump and created Matt Gates. A kind of, to use Cassidy Hutchinson's great term, she described Gates as an unserious politician. I mean, it's a very gentle way, but it captures a lot. It captures this basic contempt for the job that they have run for and ultimately won. And so, yeah, I think we should talk about the question of whether Trump changed Gates. But I think um, the fact that Gates even existed at all is, uh, is partly the story of how Trump came to dominate our politics. Jane, one thing that Gates has in common, of course, with Donald Trump is that he's been the subject of multiple scandals uh, and investigations. He's called himself the most investigated man in the U.S. Congress. Kevin McCarthy has suggested that that's actually one of the reasons behind this coup against him, that Matt Gates was mad at McCarthy for allowing an ethics investigation of him to continue inside the house. What are the allegations, Jane, against Matt Gates? Well, he's been he's been accused of trafficking in with uh, underage uh, girls. Basically, um, it, it, the Justice Department investigated him and did not bring charges. It's worth saying, um, but but there is this ongoing ethics investigation of him. From what I can tell, he is personally furious with McCarthy. So you have to believe there's some very personal thing going on here. And I would not be surprised if it was this. I mean, he, he, he's, the, he's, he's like a locker room guy who goes around boasting about, you know, the women that he's had sex with. And he's shown pictures to people in the house. And he's now married. But I mean, he's acted, you know, in a, in a really vulgar way. Not that that usually gets you an ethics investigation. But that investigation in the house is ongoing. And I imagine a huge source of grievance. Well, a lot of uh, McCarthy supporters, of course, were furious at the quick downfall that was in the end administered to him by Matt Gates. Do you think, Evan, that there's anything to make of these uh, sort of heated responses to Matt Gates? And, you know, there's people talking about kicking him out of the Republican conference or that he would, you know, face even more serious censure. Do you think there will be any uh, action that backfires on him in, in the end? Right. It was one guy who brought down the leadership. How can anyone lead in the Republican conference if there's no consequences to a rogue actor like Gates? Well, it's it's telling to me that, I mean, historically, when you looked at the impeachment, for instance, of, of Bill Clinton, uh, that it was Newt Gingrich who ultimately suffered the greatest consequences. He was the architect of that effort. So there is some history in which when you do something that um, kind of violates the uh, even the the flexible appetites of Washington, sometimes the system kind of rejects you. And it's possible. I, I mean, I just noticed Newt Gingrich himself, actually, who is still, after all, talking in politics and still has a decent sense of where the Republican Party is. 
you know, he was the one saying, no, Matt Gates really has no future in this party. But I'm not convinced. I'll be honest, Jane. I mean, I, I think it's it's equally possible that Matt Gates goes on and continues. Uh, and if it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else. I mean, I think you have to say he's been very wily. He is um, dangerously irresponsible and cynical and a total attention getter. But he he's not a fool. Um, he knows the rules of the house and he has used them very ably to pull off something that really was an incredible coup. Um, of all the sort of commentary I've read about this, one of the things that I thought was most interesting was an interview with Theta Scotchpole. I don't yeah. know if you guys saw this. Yeah. Um, she's a political scientist at Harvard. And what she's describing all of this as is the the natural um, sum of the Tea Party movement. And, and what she says is that people didn't understand something about the Tea Party movement. Many people looked at it as um, a movement about economics, where uh, working class people were saying that they were ripped off and they wanted, uh, you know, to cut government spending and all the kind of stuff. She says, it's not about, it was never really about economics. It was about white and mostly male grievance about a changing America and um, about the fact that the country is, is uh, the demographics are changing, the status of being a, a white guy in America was not just a sure thing anymore because there was more equality for women and for people of color. And so basically what she's saying is that the people who ran on Tea Party platforms were never going to be able to satisfy the base. Um, because it, it wasn't even just about government spending. It was about people saying, I'm going to stop America from changing. Mm. And they can't. And so you you get further and further right and more and more anger. And you get people like Trump who are just playing directly to white grievance. And, and a lot of what fueled it was, of course, the election of Obama, which really, uh, you know, triggered the Tea Party movement. And again, it was kind of an outpouring of racial hatred. Um, but but this is not satisfiable if there is such a word. I mean, you can't. There's no policy that you can give these people to make them happy. And I really feel that that is, um, you know, Gates is playing to them too. Mm. All right, the doom loop. So let's take a, a a quick break on that note. And when we come back, we'll talk about whether we can break out of the doom loop and what's next for House Republicans after toppling their own speaker. So we talked a little bit, guys, about Trump, but actually Donald Trump literally jumped into the middle of this House speaker race, very unusually, uh, with a middle-of-the-night tweet endorsing his longtime ally, Jim Jordan, in the speaker's race. Right now, the contest is between Jim Jordan of Ohio, Steve Scalise, the current majority leader from Louisiana. Uh, Evan, do you have any handicapping for us? What does it mean that these are the two candidates, and, and can one of them actually emerge on top? Well, it is interesting that they are going about it in in very different fashion. I mean, Steve Scalise is doing a sort of traditional speaker campaign. He hasn't been on TV, actually sort of took a, a days off until just recently. Um, he's been on the phone talking to other members of Congress. And Jim Jordan actually is this avatar of the new way, the Trump way, which is to say he has an audience of one. He courted this one guy. He got his endorsement. And now he is going outside the the process. Um, I mean, at this point, I think you'd have to say that it looks 
pretty likely that it's it's more it's more likely to be Jim Jordan than it is Steve Scalise. Huh? Do you agree with that, Jane? I I mean I don't. I mean actually I need to ask you, Susan, because you really follow the House more closely. But I do have the sense that if Jim Jordan becomes Speaker of the House. It's it's got to be a gift to the Democrats in their efforts to take back the majority of the House in 2024. Jim Jordan is, again, someone who is gifted at one thing, tearing things down. He he is not somebody I see as as likely um, to be a a successful and inspiring leader. But Susan, I'm really curious. What do you think? Because you really you really do know Congress in and out. Well, Jordan really is essentially been one of the powers behind the Freedom Caucus that in some ways has sort of taken control of the the House Republican Conference over the last few years. And Jordan has been a key driver in investigations that Republicans have launched. I think he will be all in on the impeachment inquiry against President Biden. I'm sure that's one of the reasons that Donald Trump is endorsing Jim Jordan in this speaker's race. And it's fascinating that Trump, he's got he's got so many plates in the air right now, right, Evan? He's got, you know, these four criminal cases all week long. We've been watching the spectacle of Trump showing up for his civil fraud trial in New York State related to the Trump organization business. And, uh, you know, Trump in the middle of all this has decided also to plant himself right into the middle of the politicking of the House Republicans. He says he may even come here to Washington next week to talk directly to Republicans in the middle of the race. There's one congressman out there who has been publicly campaigning and saying Donald Trump should be our House Speaker. People love to cite this rule that you don't actually have to be a member of the House of Representatives to be Speaker, although I should note it's never been tested. So, Evan, help us understand why is it you think that Donald Trump is getting right in the middle of this Speaker race? Well, I think it's, for one thing, uh, his way of talking about anything but this avalanche of legal peril. And it is real peril. I mean, just think of the irony of the fact that at the very moment that a uh, one of his kind of to- most toadyish supporters on Capitol Hill is suggesting uh, installing him as speaker, a judge in New York is literally installing a gag order on his ability to say terrible things about um, the clerk in the court. I mean, there there is a, a way in which it kind of bends your sense of reality to try to put these two things side by side. The The reality is, is that today, as we are talking, Donald Trump is a stronger presidential candidate than he was even a few months ago on the numbers. And there's already talk that some of the people who had turned against him uh, are just waiting until he gets the nomination and then they will, in fact, give him more money to run again. I, I mean, I... I'm sort of tempted to climb under the desk here, guys, and just curl up in a ball. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jane, one thing we haven't mentioned at all, of course, in all of this is Democrats. And yet, actually, a lot of what we've heard this week from Republicans after McCarthy's ouster was fury at their colleagues across the aisle because Matt Gates could not have succeeded in this if the entire House Democratic conference had not gone ahead and voted along with eight Republican rebels to oust McCarthy. Jane, what do you make of the role of Democrats here? They clearly decided as a group that this was, as Hakeem Jeffries put it, a Republican civil war, and it was up to Republicans to deal with it. Did Democrats make the right call? 
it seems ridiculous to say that it's the Democrats' fault and they should save uh, a Republican speaker who's done nothing for them and basically stuck a stick in their eye. Um, but but and when the Republicans have the majority in the House, that said, I am seeing some you know sort of interesting commentary from people like Ann Applebaum saying if you look around the world, the 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 road towards stability here. And getting out of these sort of doom cycles, as as you've described them, is bipartisanship. Um, I think it's – I really wouldn't lay it at the feet of the Democrats, though. It's the Republicans have been impossible to make deals with. They are radical. They are nihilists. They're not acting like people who are, act, uh, you know, participating in government in good faith. So there's a, there's no there's no partner there for the Democrats right now. But you could, in some better world, you can imagine there might be some sort of bipartisan way out of this. Right now, it 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 just doesn't exist with these particular people. I get the sense that you know, as high minded as it might be to say that we need to. Um, uh, go high at this moment. I, I I was reminded this week. Mark Leibovich quoted the great Jim Carvel line that he said, uh, "When your enemy is drowning, go ahead and throw him an anvil." Well, the politics of this might 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 even play into a theme we know that Joe Biden is going to run on again next year, Evan. Right, which is this idea of Republicans are extremists; they can't be entrusted to run the government because they can't even run their own caucus. Exactly. I mean, I think this week is just the most eloquent demonstration of that argument. And it's part of the reason why you haven't heard one peep out of Biden. I mean, he's just there's no reason for him to 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 wander into this thing. Just just let it play out. I mean, I I think it goes back to one of the first things we talked about on here, which is that for a long time, there's been this strange feeling that our politics is a land of no consequences. You can say anything. You can start an impeachment of the president on the basis of no evidence. And then somehow you imagine that if you're Kevin McCarthy, you're going to come back and get Democrats to support you and rescue you from your own caucus. No, actually, sometimes, occasionally, very rarely, uh, the laws of physics still prevail. Although I do think it's important to close on a note of actual consequences because there are real consequences to this. One thing that has leapt out to me is the extent to which Ukraine aid, for example, is now entirely up in the air as a a consequence of Kevin McCarthy trying and failing to placate these rebels who also have embraced Donald Trump's skepticism about U.S. support for Ukraine. It's been a marked political shift, Jane. And now you know, we're talking about something really consequential. In in many ways, this has been the most important foreign policy initiative of Joe Biden's tenure. And now, just because of the turmoil inside the House GOP, it's not even clear that the U.S. support for Ukraine can continue for the rest of the year. And it is one of the true, the, one of the only really substantive differences between Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan is is openly opposing um, Ukraine aid and uh, Scalise is is supporting it. Yeah, uh, I'll mention something. It sounds like I, I know I'm self parody here, but a, an insight from the Chinese side of this is that um, months and months ago, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, internally came up with an assessment of what they thought was going to happen in the Ukraine war. And one of the key things that they predicted was they thought Republican support in the U.S. House of Representatives was going to dissipate enough that the U.S. would not be able to sustain its commitment. And that has been a, a, a key fact in how China has actually thought about its own strategy. And it's bizarre to think that uh, on this one, they may have been right. Well, look, let's just say this, that uh, Vladimir Putin is watching all of this very, very carefully. And it just reinforces 
I think, something that's already been apparent, which is he has zero incentive to end this war in Ukraine until he waits and sees what the outcome of the U.S. election is next November. The only point I just was going to make, Susan, before was about what's happening with Trump right now. You know, yes, he's very strong as you, if you look at political polls. Um, I mean, but it seems to me in some ways he's, his rhetoric is becoming increasingly desperate. Yes, frantic. Um, and, and, and that he's, you know, screaming for attention, which I imagine is to take, uh, to distract people from looking at the trials. Um, he's, he's doing one thing after another in order to try to keep people from looking at what's happening inside this courtroom. And one of the things that happened for Trump this week was a, a blatant defeat. He, mm-hmm. he withdrew a case that he had brought against Michael Cohen, his, his former lawyer. Um, and it was a $500 million damages suit of some sort, and he just gave up on it and withdrew it. I mean, he is not faring well right now legally. And by the way, he withdrew it so that he would not have to give a sworn under oath deposition in the case that he himself had brought, which is, I think, classic Donald Trump. But Jane, this is a really important point. Actually, this week, the Washington Post media writer did a piece on exactly this question of how do we cover Uh, Trump's increasingly violent and extreme rhetoric, uh, noticing that the front pages of uh, America's newspapers were entirely almost silent when he called for all caps death uh, for the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs. They asked me that question. My answer, as you guys all know, is, of course, yes, it's it's important to take him seriously and literally. Evan and Jane, I'm curious, what would you guys have answered to the media writer? Are the papers failing to cover the news of Trump because we're just overwhelmed with news of Trump? I mean, I think there's such a double standard about the way they cover, you know, Trump's utterances and Biden's utterances. If Biden says anything that's even slightly off script, everybody jumps on him and says, oh, he's demented or whatever. Trump is saying things that are would would sink any normal person. And he's calling for extrajudicial killings, basically. He's talking about shooting shoplifters dead. He's talking about killing people on the border. He's talking about uh, bring the death sentence for uh, the general who was the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, this is this is crazy rhetoric and dangerous rhetoric, um, and I don't feel he's being it's it's being given enough attention. Really, I agree. I mean, I think um, in some ways the tools in in our usual arsenal, you know, the edges are blunt now. We've tried. Uh, to talk about him in every way we can. We've come with the grandest analogies and the biggest sort of stakes and everything. But the truth is the only solution is to keep doing it and to keep talking about it. And on some level, actually, I think it sinks in. I mean, you don't see it in the polls, as you said, Jane. But on some level, that's the, the Biden strategy is he just believes Americans fundamentally don't want that in their lives. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's see if he's right. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Susan Glasser. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.